the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartez producing and engineering in Seattle. Today we'll take a look at some of the weekend headlines and a conversation I had with Rabbi Kurt Schneider. We'll share that with you. Messianic prophecy revealed, seeing Messiah in the pages of the Hebrew Bible. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour of today's program. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, the GOP majority scheduled several big priorities for the week of January 8th related to two separate impeachment probes, as well as a visit by Congress by infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci, a name we haven't heard in just a little while. Well, his first sit down with the 118th Congress will be a Closed-door interview with the House Select Committee on COVID-19. He'll field questions from lawmakers on both sides on Monday and Tuesday for a marathon seven hours each day. On the 10th of January, the House Oversight Committee and the Homeland Security Committee are both taking big steps in Republicans' push for accountability for the Biden administration. Oversight uh, Chairman James Comer, the Republican out of Kentucky, announced his panel uh, would hold a procedural meeting to advance a contempt resolution against Hunter Biden, President Biden's son, for failure to comply with a congressional subpoena. Republicans had subpoenaed Hunter for a sworn deposition on the 13th of December, which happens to be my mother's birthday, as part of an impeachment inquiry looking into whether the president and his family profited off of foreign business deals. Well, he skipped the sit down instead, opting to hold a press conference in front of the U.S. Capitol, criticizing the GOP's impeachment inquiry of his father. Comer said on Friday that Hunter Biden's willful refusal to comply with our subpoenas constitutes contempt of Congress and warrants referral to the appropriate United States Attorney's Office for prosecution. We will not provide him with a special treatment because of his last name. Well, that's uh, happening this week. Representative Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on the committee, panned Comer's decision to hold Hunter in contempt and pointed out that he offered to testify in a public hearing despite Republicans insisting on a closed door deposition first. Instead of taking yes for an answer, the chairman uh, Comer has now obstructed his own hapless investigation by denying Hunter Biden the opportunity to answer all the committee's questions in front of the American people and the world, which they did promise he would have the opportunity to do after a closed door meeting, as all of the other witnesses were required to engage in. Also on January 10th, the Homeland Security Committee is holding its first hearing in House Republicans impeachment of DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The House voted uh, in November to refer a resolution to impeach Mayorkas to the committee, giving them the reins in the GOP's quest to oust the Biden official. Our investigation made clear that this crisis finds its foundation in Secretary Mayorkas' decision-making and refusal to enforce the laws passed by Congress, and that his failure to fulfill his oath of office demands accountability. That's a quote from committee chair Mark Green out of Tennessee in a statement. 
He went on the bipartisan House vote in November to refer articles of impeachment to my committee only served to highlight the importance of our taking up the impeachment process, which is what we will begin doing next Wednesday. Well, after the high profile action of uh, this week is over, lawmakers likely will not get much breathing room. The House and Senate must reach a deal on government funding by the 19th of this month or risk a partial government shutdown. Speaking of which, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Mike Johnson reached a $1.59 trillion agreement on Sunday night to finance the 2024 federal government. The deal comes two weeks before a partial government shutdown would occur. The deal faces opposition from House Republicans, particularly the Freedom Caucus members, who consider it a total failure and totally unacceptable. Those are direct quotes. The agreement allocates $886.3 billion for defense spending and $772.7 billion for discretionary domestic spending. Notably, the deal also rescinds $6.1 billion in coronavirus emergency spending authority and advances cuts from $80 billion in new funding for the Internal Revenue Service, stripping $20 billion of that total this year. Funding for roughly 20 percent of the government, including so-called essential programs like veterans assistance and food and drug services, runs out on the 19th of January, with the rest of the government facing a funding deadline on February 2nd. Lawmakers have a tight deadline to pass legislation and avoid a partial government shutdown. The House's Freedom Caucus, posting on X, condemned the deal. It's even worse than we thought, they wrote. The true um, programmatic spending level is $1.658 trillion, not $1.59 trillion. This is total failure, end quote. Well, disagreements have arisen over the IRS funding provisions, with Democrats agreeing to expedite a $20 billion cut, while Republicans insist upon an additional $10 billion reduction. The agreement is informed by a deal reached last spring to suspend the nation's debt limit, with additional uh, spending agreed upon between Biden and then-Speaker Kevin uh, Kevin McCarthy. Let's get that right. However, Republicans, led by Florida Congressman Matt Gates, ousted McCarthy for adhering to the agreement, leading to the selection of Mike Johnson after a rather long process as the new House Speaker. The bipartisan funding framework uh, congressional leaders have reached moves us one step closer to preventing a needless government shutdown and protecting important national priorities, the president said in a statement on Sunday evening. One step closer, but perhaps several steps back. We'll see what happens next. Meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court on Friday agreed to take up Colorado's decision to remove former President Donald Trump from the state's 2024 primary ballot. The court's notification that it will um, consider Colorado's ballot removal ruling comes two days after Trump's legal team appealed to the nine federal justices. The former president asked the court to settle his eligibility for the presidency. Maine is another state that recently disqualified him from the ballot. This court should summarily reverse the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling and return the right to vote for their candidate of choice to the voters, the Wednesday filing stated. Well, the question of eligibility to serve as president of the United States is properly reserved for Congress, not the state courts, to consider and decide the appeal added. By considering the question of President Trump's eligibility and barring him from the ballot, the Colorado Supreme Court arrogated Congress's authority, end quote. Well, in December, the liberal-leaning Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Trump should be barred from the state's 2024 presidential 
primary ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which forbids anyone who engaged in insurrection or rebellion from seeking public office. More than a week after Colorado's move, Maine's Democratic Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows, dealt a similar ruling against Trump, who appealed that decision to the Maine Superior Court earlier this week as well. Actually, that was last week. Well, shortly after the courts uh, took up the first ballot remove, uh, removal decision, Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, a Democrat, announced that the state's primary ballot was certified, that Trump's name appearing on the list of candidates would remain. The main decision is on hold while the appeals process continues, meaning that Trump remains on the ballot in the Pine Tree State, at least for now. The presidential primaries in both Colorado and Maine are scheduled for March the 5th, otherwise known as Super Tuesday, the election day when the greatest number of states hold their primary caucuses. And whether or not the uh, former president will be in court remains an open question. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in the Colorado case on the 8th of February, a, week, a month from today, providing ample time for both parties to submit amicus briefs in support of their opinions. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, a reminder coming up in the second uh, hour, a conversation I had with Rabbi Kurt Schneider, Messianic Prophecy Revealed, Seeing Messiah in the Pages of the Hebrew Bible. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up later in today's program, Rabbi Kurt Schneider, author of Messianic Prophecy Revealed. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour, a conversation I had with the good rabbi. Well, Friday marked the official kickoff of President Biden's reelection campaign, but it's only First Lady Jill Biden granting interviews so far in 2024. It was announced that the presidential spouse would sit down with MSNBC's Mika Brzezinski to discuss her life, career and the pivotal year ahead at a White House event this week. The liberal Morning Joe co-host will likely not subjugate her to an intense grilling following the pattern of friendly interviews. Her husband's White House um, has greenlit in recent months. A university professor and uh, media critic Jeffrey McCall says it's a miscalculation for Team Biden to make the first lady a campaign surrogate, at least one with a heavier media presence than the candidate himself. Voters can surely infer she is only doing the interviews because the president can't or won't, McCall said. Well, the last news platform that landed a Biden interview was October 15th, an installment of 60 Minutes with CBS correspondent Uh, Scott Pelley primarily focusing on the president's reaction to the Hamas attacks against Israel that occurred days earlier. Some of the questions he posed to the president included, why do you feel so strongly about speaking to these families of American hostages in Gaza personally on Zoom? Is getting the American hostages back safely among your highest priorities? Does the dysfunction that we've seen in Congress increase the danger in the world? And why do you feel so strongly? Uh, What does it mean? uh, What does Israel mean to you? Wow, those are pretty probing questions. Well, the 60 Minutes interview was panned by Biden's potential 2024 opponent, former President Donald Trump, who uh, wrote on uh, Truth Social that CBS News led him along like a child. Well, each question contained the answer and was so weakly and apologetically asked that it was a joke, which should be considered a campaign contribution to the Democratic Party. The former president exclaimed, well, since 60 Minutes, Biden granted interviews with Spanish radio host 
uh, Tony Arias, CNN, uh, CNN's Anderson Cooper, on his podcast about grief and comedian Conan O'Brien. He also briefly spoke with NBC's Al Roker during the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade by phone, as well as Ryan Seacrest during ABC's New Year's Eve broadcast, both alongside the First Lady. Joe Biden appears ready to run the same campaign in 2024 that he ran in 2020, the so-called basement strategy. Don't interact at all in uncontrolled situations. Limit yourself to subservient media and make the election about Donald Trump. Cornell Law School professor and media critic William Jacobson suggests Biden staying in the basement keeps the media focused on Trump. Whatever downside there may be to the basement strategy, it's the best strategy Biden has. Now, on the other hand, Trump is preoccupied with his legal challenges and has uh, de- declined participating in the debate. So perhaps he has a different version of the same strategy. Perhaps the last time Biden faced hard-hitting questions in an interview setting was back in February of 2023 when he was grilled by PBS NewsHour Judy Woodruff and ABC's David Muir about his classified document scandal and a pair of sit-downs. What followed was a string of friendly interviews that included The Daily Show guest host uh, and former Obama aide Cal Penn, Roker... Um, uh, Cal Penn, Roker, MSNBC's Stephanie Rule, and Nicole Wallace, CNN's Fareed Zakaria, British wellness podcast host Jay Shatt, and the Weather Channel's Stephanie Abrams and ProPublica's John Hardwood. Well, according to the data from UC Santa Barbara's American Presidency Project, Presidency Project, both Biden and Trump were outpaced by former President Obama, who, in the same time frame during his presidency, granted over 20 interviews to several news organizations, including Fox News. Biden has held fewer press conferences than any modern president, averaging 11 per year so far, roughly half of Trump's 22 uh, average and uh, Obama's 20 per the American presidency. A presidency, I can't say the word, presidency, enunciate project. Well, a mid-air blowout has put jet maker Boeing in the exact place investors and management hoped it would avoid. Back in the regulatory crosshairs, just as it was awaiting approval of new models of the best-selling Max jet. Well, investigators say it's too early to determine what caused a so-called door plug to fall off from the side of an aircraft operating operated rather by one of Boeing's most loyal customers, Alaska Airlines, on Friday with 171 passengers on board. The Federal Aviation Administration said on Sunday that 171 Boeing MAX 9 airplanes, B-A-N, would remain grounded until the agency is convinced they can safely operate. The mishap comes as Boeing and supplier Spirit Aerosystems, which made the panels, are grappling with ongoing production setbacks that have hampered recovery from an earlier lengthy 737 MAX safety grounding and wider disruption from the pandemic. Boeing has been under pressure to expand the MAX portfolio and narrow a gap with rival Airbus, which has extended gains and market share since two Boeing MAX crashes in 2018 and 2019 that killed nearly 350 people and led to MAX's worldwide grounding for 20 months. The MAX's troubled history resulted in sweeping reforms of U.S. airplane regulation in 2020, and the Alaska incident could prompt regulators to take a tougher line on other outstanding issues. Airlines increasingly want to carry more passengers in single-aisle aircraft to take advantage of increases in performance and range while benefiting from the lower cost. After disappointing sales of the MAX 9, Boeing's largest narrow-body, The company was betting on the newest proposal, the larger capacity MAX 10, 
to cut into runway sales of Airbus A321neo at the busiest end of the market. Analysts say a full rollout of the MAX lineup is crucial to help Boeing steady or improve its roughly 40% market share and generate enough cash to comfortably ride out the coming decade. Had to have been terrifying to have that opening ripped into the side of the uh, the aircraft. People lost their uh, earphones right out of their ears. Their phones were sucked out of the plane. Fortunately, there was no one sitting uh, in the two seats directly in front of the gaping hole. Um, but it was a traumatic experience. Many took to their phones to say their final goodbyes to loved ones, believing this might have been for them it. In other news, America's offices are emptier than at any point in the last four decades, reflecting years of overbuilding and shifting work habits that were accelerated by the pandemic. A staggering 19.6% of office space in major U.S. cities wasn't leased as of the fourth quarter. That's according to um, Moody's Analytics, up from 18.8% a year earlier. That's slightly above the previous record of 19.3%. Set in 1986 and 1991, and the highest number since at least 1979, which is as far back as Moody's data goes. Well, the new record shows how remote work has upended the office market, but that's only part of the story. Much of the market's current malaise traces its roots to the office market downturn of the 80s and 90s. Well, that surge in office vacancies in the 1980s and early 90s followed years of overbuilding. Easy lending fueled a construction boom, particularly in the South, where land was cheap and red tape sparse. Banks often financed speculative office projects that didn't have any tenants signed up. The building I built was almost a million square feet, 100% empty, said one developer who built the Manhattan office tower 1540 Broadway in the 1980s. The result was a glut of office buildings that couldn't find tenants when the economy went into recession in 1990 as the country suffered from the savings and loan crisis when many SNLs failed. Well, that glut weighs on the office market to this day and helps explain why vacancies are far higher in the U.S. than in Europe or Asia. Many office parks built in the 1980s and earlier struggled to find tenants as companies cut back on space or leave Uh, for more modern buildings. In other news, the University of Montana is taking heat from Republican lawmakers in the state after defending a program that allows groups tied to the Chinese Communist Party to host and pay for student trips to China. UMT is offering a controversial study abroad program in China referred to as the CUSEF Cultural Exchange that's raised national security concerns from state lawmakers who say the groups that fund the trips are an organ of the Chinese Communist Party's approach to influence operations. The program is teaming up with two Uh, CCP tied groups for an upcoming summer trip, the China United States Exchange Foundation, which is an influencing operation described by lawmakers as a forum uh, designed to advance to Chinese Communist Party objectives and the Max S. Bacchus Institute. The Bacchus Institute, formed um, by former Democrat Senator of Montana and former ambassador to China, Max Bacchus, is highly funded by the Wang Jiang Group 
whose co-founder was awarded the title of National Outstanding Communist Party member. Despite Montana GOP calls to terminate all ties with CUSEF, the university is defending the partnership and prompting more concern from state lawmakers who believe the threat should be taken more seriously. Well, in the House letter to Bodnar, co-signed by Representative Mike Gallagher, the Republican out of Wisconsin, the lawmaker said the CUSEF is a key united front forum designed to advance Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party objectives in and beyond the PRC. The founder and longtime chair of the organization, Tong Chi Hua, was the vice chair of the CPPCC and uh, clearly assigns uh, aligns rather with the China, uh, Chinese Communist Party interest. Since the 1980s, Tung served as a proxy for uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party in Hong Kong, where as the first chief executive, he pushed for the kind of draconian national security legislation we see today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in our second hour today, a conversation I had with Rabbi Kurt Schneider, author of Messianic Prophecy Revealed, Seeing Messiah in the Pages of the Hebrew Bible. That's coming up at five o'clock. Well, House Democrats are accusing former President Donald Trump of taking in more than $7.8 million from foreign governments via payments to the Trump Organization while he was in the White House. A majority of that came from the Chinese government and state-owned entities, Democrats say, while the rest came from 19 other countries, including Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Qatar. A minority staff on the House Oversight Committee released a 156-page report on Thursday detailing claims that the former president repeatedly violated the emoluments clause of the Constitution, which states that federal officials may not accept gifts or cash from foreign states, actors without congressional approval. After promising the greatest info infomercial in uh, political history, former President Donald Trump repeatedly and willfully violated the U.S. Constitution by failing to divest from his company's Uh, his business empire, rather, and allowing his businesses to accept millions of dollars in payments from some of the most corrupt nations on earth. The top Democrat on the committee, Representative Jamie Raskin, said the limits, uh, the limited records that the committee obtained show that while Donald Trump was in office, he received more than five point five million dollars from the Chinese government and Chinese state owned enterprises, as well as Arabia, Qatar and United Arab Emirates and Malaysia. Uh, through just four of the more than 500 entities he owned, end quote. Well, along with the report, oversight uh, Democrats also produced more than 400 pages, some redacted, of documents from Mazur's USA LLC, Trump's former accounting firm. They accused the former president of allowing his uh, businesses to profit off of foreign cash while suggesting he provided benefits to those uh, countries in return. Well, much of the investment uh, investigation rather appeared to have focused on the Trump organization's hotels in Las Vegas, New York and Washington, D.C., as well as Trump Tower in Manhattan. It's not immediately clear whether all of the uh, contracts or agreements on the Trump Tower payments were made before the former president took office or started his 2016 campaign. A spokesperson for the Trump organization pointed out that Beijing-backed bank ICBC was a tenant who signed a 20-year office lease in the Trump Tower in 2008, almost a decade before President Trump entered office. The spokesperson said also uh, foreign profits were donated in full to the United States Treasury for patronage at our properties while President Trump was in office. Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, the Republican out of Kentucky, responded, saying it's beyond parody that Democrats continue their obsession with former President Trump. 
Former President Trump has legitimate businesses, but the Bidens do not. And so it continues. A Republican senator recently blasted President Biden by calling him one of the worst presidents in American history due to his willingness to bulldoze the Constitution. I think he'll go down as a one-termer and one of the worst presidents in American history. Senator Eric Schmidt, a Republican from Missouri, said during a recent interview, he's really weaponized the administrative state in a way we've never seen before in American history. So I think he's one of the worst presidents in American history, the Missouri senator from the opposing party continued. It's just been a total disaster, and I think the truth is he has some pretty radical leftists that are running the White House. I mean, the idea that an American president isn't interested in having a secure southern border with all the problems, fentanyl, drugs, violence, potential terrorists is nuts anyway, end quote. Well, President Biden frequently uses the term Bidenomics in an attempt to tout his economic efforts while campaigning for reelection. But the term has become increasingly unpopular as voters struggle under the current state of the economy. The senator said that Bidenomics has had a tremendously negative effect on his constituents and that average Americans are experiencing sticker shock with higher costs under the president. Schmidt also uh, took aim at uh, Biden's son, Hunter, who is facing numerous charges related to more than a million dollars in unpaid taxes and possession of a firearm by a person who is an unlawful user or addicted to a controlled substance. Sometimes I forget what the people's work actually involves. A U.S. Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, has been hospitalized since the first day of 2024. And while Pentagon officials have not said when he will be released, they continue to avoid saying why he went to the hospital in the first place. Austin was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center last Monday for what Pentagon Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder described as complications from an elective medical procedure. On Sunday, Ryder told Fox News that Austin had an elective medical procedure at Walter Reed in December of last year, the 22nd to be more precise. He was on leave at the time of the procedure and he returned home the next day. But on the 1st of January, he started experiencing severe pain and was taken back to Walter Reed and admitted to intensive care. Ryder said Austin was placed in ICU to ensure immediate access to his medical needs, but the, he remained there in part because of privacy and hospital space considerations. On Friday, Austin resumed his duties from the hospital, and according to Ryder, he is recovering well and is in good spirits. Ryder added that Austin spoke with President Biden on Saturday and has been in contact with Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General C.Q. Brown uh, Jr. and his senior staff, as to when Austin might be released from the hospital, Ryder noted there is no specific date. He was also unable to provide information on whether Austin will be doing in-person press briefings over the next week. The Department of Justice is suing Texas over a law deeming illegal immigration a crime. Illegal, wouldn't that suggest a crime? Anyway, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against Texas on Wednesday over its new lawmaking illegal immigration, a state crime. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said the state was left to fend for itself due to President Biden's deliberate inaction on border security. He added the bill provides a mechanism to order um, an illegal immigrant to return to the foreign nation from which they entered. Department of Justice alleges the law is unconstitutional, however. The uh, Justice Department is also involved in the legal battles attempting to remove Texas uh, concertina wire fencing and Bowie uh, barriers, the latter of which were ordered to be removed by a federal appeals court in early December. That order was subsequently dismissed a week later. 
The fights regarding the razor wire and floating barriers are still ongoing. The shooting at an Iowa high school injured three people while the shooter turned the gun on himself. The suspected Iowa school shooter who injured three people, including the principal, before turning the gun on himself, has been identified as a school senior. Uh, The senior who was uh, at Perry High School was named as the suspected gunman by local news outlet. Police uh, have not confirmed the identification. One of the three people injured was the school principal who was rushed to the hospital and is currently in uh, was in surgery for his gunshot wounds. The other two people injured were students. Libs of TikTok say that Perry High School uh, shooter having been identified is allegedly his um, uh, his TikTok account, which was already scrubbed. He posted this uh, photo before the shooting from the school bathroom. He appears to be part of the LGBTQ community with the flag in his bio. In another post, he put the hashtag gender fluid. In another video, he acted out of um, shooting exchange, um, out a shooting exchange, obviously a broken, mentally ill young person. Wall Street Journal reports that Islamic State said in a statement that two of its operatives had detonated explosive belts. Just the uh, the news points out that ISIS on Thursday claimed responsibility for a deadly attack in Iran at a memorial for slain Iranian Quds Force commander Qasim Soleimani. The attack left dozens dead and hundreds injured. CNN reports that 84 people had died, 284 injured. This is the deadliest attack in Iran since the Iranian Revolution. A U.S. airstrike in Baghdad on Thursday killed an Iran-backed militia commander and risked accelerating the regional fallout from Washington's support for Israel's military operation in Gaza, even as the Biden administration scrambles to contain the bloodshed. Explosions occurred in the central part of the city, rattling windows and prompting the Iraq authorities to close off streets nearby. A a, uh, militia that has claimed several attacks on U.S. forces, said in a statement that its uh, deputy commander of operations in the Baghdad region, uh, known as Abu Taqwa, was killed in a strike at a logistical support headquarters on Palestine Street. The Times of Israel says that Iraq's Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani said in a statement that the U.S.-led international coalition bears responsibility for the unjustified, in quote, attacks on an Iraqi security force. The past week saw deadly blasts in Iran and the killing of Deputy Hamas chief in an alleged Israeli strike in Lebanon. Americans purchased 15.8 million dollars, uh, million guns, rather, in 2023. They purchased the 16 million firearms last year, a solid rejection of the president's a gun control agenda, according to new FBI background check data. Uh, this last week, the agency uh, reported conducting 29.8 million background checks in 2023, the fourth highest ever. When non-sales checks were filtered out, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, the industry's trade group, said that translated into an estimated 15.8 million actual sales last year. In December alone, the 53rd month in a row of sales over a million, NSSF said that there were 1,775,834 gun buys. That's likely to surge this year because Biden has promised to put gun control at the center of his agenda. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break and continue taking a look at the day's headlines and looking forward to my conversation with Rabbi Kurt Schneider, Messianic Prophecy 
Revealed. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, Rabbi Kurt Schneider, Messianic Prophecy Revealed. That's coming up at 5 right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Russia is planning to buy short-range ballistic missiles from Iran. That's a step that would enhance Moscow's ability to target Ukraine's infrastructure at a critical moment in the conflict, according to U.S. officials. Their plan is to provoke deep concern within the Biden administration and come to support uh, comes rather as support wanes in Congress for continued U.S. military assistance for Ukraine. Lawmakers have yet to pass that bill uh, that would provide additional funding for Ukraine holding out for the U.S. border first. A United Nations Security Council resolution adopted after the 2015 nuclear Iran nuclear deal that prohibited Iran from exporting and importing some types of missiles and drones, as well as military technology used to produce and operate missiles without the council's approval, formally expired in October. Russia's foreign ministry, however, said the U.N. ban on Iranian missile sales no longer is needed uh, to um, be followed. Well, that was rather awkwardly put, but I think you get the idea. Well, Seattle reached record-breaking levels of fentanyl deaths in 2023. The Seattle area notched a grim record for deaths that involved fentanyl last year with more than a 1,000 fatal overdoses. King County saw a total of 1,284 fatal overdoses from uh, drugs and alcohol in 2023, and 1,060 of them involved fentanyl, according to the county data. Another 72 suspected overdoses from last year are pending toxicology reports. Fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that is about 50 times more potent than heroin, has been on the rise in the U.S. for years, but last year's numbers are more than a 30% spike from 2022, which saw 717 fentanyl-related deaths in King County. A Connecticut woman will become Vermont's first non-resident to die by medically assisted suicide. The 76-year-old traveled from Connecticut to Vermont on Wednesday to prepare for her scheduled death. Bluestein's son, uh, Jake Shannon, said that uh, Bluestein, the uh, the woman, will take a lethal injection on Thursday morning. Bluestein said the state of Connecticut was cruel for not allowing medically assisted suicide. Supporters of assisted suicide also commonly refer to the practice as medical aid in dying, physician-assisted death and aid in dying. In addition to Vermont, nine other states and Washington, D.C. allow medically-assisted suicide, including California, Colorado, Hawaii, Maine, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, the states of Oregon, and Washington. Only Vermont and Oregon allow non-residents to obtain uh, that lethal dose. When it comes to being an ambassador for women, surely being a biological woman yourself is the minimum requirement. Well, not according to the UN Women UK, the United Nations charity supposedly dedicated to improving the lives of women and girls across the country. Because 36-year-old model and broadcaster Monroe Bergdorf, who was born a man but now identifies as a woman, has been appointed as the group's first UK champion, an ambassadorial role tasked with helping to empower the female of the species. The math just doesn't add up. Well, the best way to empower women would be to give them senior positions such as this one, one would assume. But perhaps UN Women UK to be, believe uh, no woman in the country can do the job as well as one who was born a man. Fair Play for Women weighs in, saying UN Women has made a point of demonstrating that it considers male can become women, It's disappointing to see the U.K. committee go so far as to select a male to represent women. 
Their credibility is in tatters. Well, New York City Mayor Eric Adams has announced a lawsuit against 17 bus and transportation companies helping to send asylum seekers to the city as it deals with major budget issues surrounding the crisis. Now, interestingly, they haven't called the White House and demanded help from them. Well, the city is seeking $708 million in the lawsuit to cover costs for caring for migrants. The lawsuit is yet to be reviewed by the county clerk. It cites Section 149 of the New York Social Service Law, which requires any person who knowingly brings or causes to be brought a needy person from out of state into the state for the purpose of making him a public charge shall be obligated to convey such person out of the state or support him at his own expense. New York Governor Kathy Hochul stood in support of the lawsuit as well. Eric Adams is now suing bus companies who bring illegals from the southern border into New York. Another batch of unsealed court documents has been released from Jeffrey Epstein's victim, Virginia um, Guffrey's lawsuit against Epstein's accomplice. Uh, This second batch, now four, includes some names of noteworthy individuals not previously known to have been associated with the convicted sex offender and former financier. Heartbreaking and infuriating. That's what uh, Speaker Johnson said, ripping Team Biden Uh, His assessment of the administration's deliberate disaster on our southern border. Johnson was in Texas, the border town of Eagle Pass, on Wednesday last week, having led a House delegation of dozens of Republicans to the area, adding unmitigated disaster to his efforts to describe the indescribable. Johnson blamed Joe Biden directly and added, one thing is absolutely clear. America is at a breaking point. Joe Biden's Justice Department is crying foul over Texas new lawmaking, illegal Uh, Immigration, a state crime. The department threatened to sue the Lone Star State over the law and has proceeded to do just that. So-called defenders of democracy are targeting other Republicans for ballot removal. It's not just Donald Trump that Democrats are seeking to bar from ballots across the country using the uh, uh, spurious label of insurrectionists. Democrats have been seeking to keep current Republican congressional lawmakers off the ballot over election denialism. Uh, Using this rationale, Democrat Representative Bill uh, Pascrell from New Jersey tried to get 126 Republican House members banned from re-election. Democrat Representative Cori Bush has introduced similar legislation that 63 Democrat lawmakers signed on to. Democrats were effectively engaged in promoting a new version of McCarthyism in which Republican lawmakers who dare to support Trump are being smeared as threats to democracy. In a three-part ex-missive, historian and classicist Victor Davis Hanson, one of my favorite columnists, asks, who are the real insurrectionists? As he sees it, when an unelected Maine bureaucrat and former ACLU activist removes the opposition party's leading presidential candidate from the state's ballot, it's an attack on one of our fundamental institutions, our electoral system. And when the loser of the 2016 election engages in denialism and claims to be part of an organized resistance to an illegitimate president who had rigged and stolen the election that's insurrectionist behavior and when the losing political party colludes with our nation's intelligence services to frame and otherwise undermine a duly elected president that too is insurrectionist behavior well it's no secret that uh, trump special prosecutor jack smith is a zealot after all it's not every lawyer who can boast that his legal tactics have been unanimously rebuked by the U.S. Supreme Court. More evidence of Smith's anti-Republican bias came in light this week when 
He learned that, uh, or rather, we learned that one of his top prosecutors, Ray Hulzer, discouraged the FBI from pursuing an investigation into the Clinton Foundation in 2016 due to what he viewed as negligible evidence, despite multiple suspicious activity reports related to hundreds of thousands of dollars in foreign transactions. Well, according to the Durham report, Three separate FBI field offices had opened investigations into the Clinton Foundation for possible criminal activity back in 2016. But, well, nothing to see here. Move along. And we trust this guy, Jack Smith, to give Donald Trump a fair shake. Well, in an effort to deflect from Joe Biden's uh, influence peddling gig, Democrats on the House Oversight Committee released details regarding uh, what they believe are Trump's businesses receiving Foreign government from foreign governments while he was president. The back and forth will continue right up until and through the 2024 presidential election. God help us. The Iowa school shooter was allegedly part of the transgender movement, we've learned. And U.S. payrolls increased by $216,000 in December. Much better than expected. Blue states saw the highest homeless rates in 2023. And House Democrats are urging Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from the Trump Colorado ballot case. The next Republican debate will only feature Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump, nowhere to be seen or heard. New York City filed a $700 million lawsuit against Bunce companies that have transported migrants from Texas to the Big Apple. And a B-1 bomber crashed during a training mission in South Dakota. Thankfully, the crew ejected safely. A mega study finds that minorities don't receive harsher criminal punishments, but that academics say that so anyway. And ISIS claimed responsibility for the suicide bomb attacks on the Soleimani Memorial in Iran. Well, that uh, pretty much uh, covers the headlines until the top of the hour. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour. And when we return, a conversation I had with Rabbi Kurt Schneider He's the author most recently of Messianic Prophecy Revealed. Uh, Being a a Jewish believer, his uh, subtitle, Seeing Messiah in the Pages of the Hebrew Bible, help us to recognize that he should have been recognized and that in uh, making the point, many in Israel today who are questioning events may, uh, for the first time, see him in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's coming up after news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The biblical and historical story of Yeshua, King Jesus, is bigger, it's grander, and it's more beautiful than many of us have ever imagined. So says my next guest, who would know as a rabbi. God has been painting a, a picture, has been pointing to his son as savior of the world for thousands of years in his word. And yet many of us struggle to connect the dots. Well, I am delighted that our next guest will help us do that with a book that is uh, just released this week. I'm referring to Rabbi Schneider. He is the host of the popular TV and radio broadcast, Discovering the Jewish Jesus. For more than 30 years, Rabbi Schneider has been teaching people how Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecy and completes the unfolding plan of the Messiah. Rabbi Schneider is the author of several books, including Rivers of Revelation, The Lion of Judah, The Book of Revelation Decoded, and Awakening to 
to Messiah. Rabbi Schneider is the host of Discovering the Jewish Jesus Heard Weekdays here on our sister station, KPDQ AM, at 1030 AM and at 9 PM weekdays. And he's the author of the book we'll be talking about today, Messianic Prophecy Revealed, Seeing Messiah in the Pages of the Hebrew Bible. Rabbi Schneider, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to make your acquaintance, Georgine. Boy, you really, uh, you really, you sold me on that introduction. That sounded really fabulous. <laughs> well, it is a fabulous book, and you're a great guest. I'm just delighted to have you with us. I always love to hear the story of how uh, men and women come to faith in Christ, and I think our listeners might assume, based on your uh, your moniker, Rabbi uh, Schneider, that you studied uh, the Hebrew language, that you grew up as a serious Jew, and came to recognize Christ through the Scriptures, but you came through a much more circuitous route, as is the case for many, if not most of us. Can you tell us a little bit about how you as a Jew came to faith in Jesus? Well, it definitely uh, is somewhat unusual in the sense that Jesus actually appeared to me in a vision in the middle of the night in 1978. I knew nothing about Jesus. Uh, Jesus was as far away to me, Georgine, as the man on the moon. We grew up in a very Jewish neighborhood. Uh, You make a a good point in the sense that most Jewish people are secular and thoroughly identify with being Jewish, and it defines their identity. But when it comes to relating their Jewishness to a specific walk with God, most Jewish people, as I indicated, don't view their Jewishness as something that's religious. They view it more in terms of a cultural identity. So this was kind of the environment I grew up in. I actually grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Beechwood, which has been listed as having the second highest concentration Mm -hmm. of Jews anywhere in the world outside of Israel. Not as many numerically as in Los Angeles, New York, but in terms of the closeness and the proximity and and the volume of Jewish people living in isolation, that's kind of the, 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 the type of environment I was raised in. Our schools were actually closed on the Jewish holidays, public schools closed on Jewish holidays because no one would be there. So um, growing up in this environment, Jesus, as I indicated, was completely removed from my universe. I mean, I never thought about Jesus. He never entered my mind. But I was at a point in life where I was lost and searching. I was 20 years old, and I was in the midst of having an identity crisis. I was a really committed athlete in high school, got a small wrestling scholarship to college. But the moment I walked up that wrestling mat, Georgine, after wrestling that last match in high school, even though I knew I was going off to college and had a wrestling scholarship to wrestle there, somehow I realized that wrestling was over in an instant. It was like the world was pulled out from underneath my feet. Because when I looked forward, I saw that I could not just focus on people that wrestled my weight class anymore. That could no longer be my world. I was leaving home, and I was now uh, on, uh, in the process of becoming a responsible adult, adult and it wasn't about wrestling anymore. And so my identity kind of was shattered at that point. And I realized that I was not in control. I used to be in control. On the wrestling mat, I was in control. And my world was people that wrestled my weight class. I was in control there. But now I was going into the real world. I wasn't in control. So I was really struggling. And to make a long story short, uh, being in the state of uh, loss of identity, searching for two years, I went to sleep one night. Again, no one had ever witnessed to me. No one had ever talked to me about Jesus. He, he was just, you know, just didn't exist really in terms of my my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. But on a hot August night at 20 years old, Jesus appeared to me in the middle of the night, and I came to faith in an instant. That is such a remarkable story, although I'm hearing 
in places where Christian witness is not available, that this is a uh, a way that many, particularly in the Middle East, are coming to faith in Christ. So it's not surprising, especially if you know the scriptures, yeah. that God would appear in such a way. At what point did you connect this Jesus that appeared to you in a dream to the Messiah that would have at least been um, fairly familiar, given your Jewish background? Yeah. So what happened was, as I indicated, I was lost and struggling when he came to me in a vision of the night. I was 3.30 in the morning. I got up, went to the restroom, went back to bed. But immediately, hope came into my heart. I knew from that vision that God had just revealed himself to me. I knew enough as an American to know the person on the cross was Jesus. That's all I knew. But I knew that God had just revealed himself to me and showed me that Jesus was the way. So I started telling everybody about this experience. And eventually, it got back to me that I should go get a New Testament. So I went and got a New Testament, started devouring the Word of God. And at that point, I began slowly to put the pieces together, how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. Your decision to become a follower of Jesus, who had revealed himself to you first in a dream and then in his word, was an Mm -hmm. unpopular idea. And it was very costly for you to continue to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Yes, there's definitely definitely been a price to pay. I actually talk about my full experience in my autobiography. It's called Called to Breakthrough. It's available on Amazon. And my parents, for example, Georgine, I hired the most famous deprogrammer in the country at the time. His name is Ted Patrick. They actually flew him into Cleveland, where we were living, from California, along with his two bodyguards. And my dad told me that we were going to go meet somebody about purchasing a restaurant. So we got to the hotel where we were going to be meeting this uh, guy, supposedly about purchasing a restaurant. And instead, what happened is I walked into the room, the doors closed behind me, and the head of the programmer looked at me and said, You've been living like a normal person for 20 years, and all of a sudden you're giving all your money away to the church and reading all the the Bible all the time, and I consider it a personal challenge. I'm going to snap you out of this thing. And so they basically abducted me. They uh, took me from there to California where they had a rehabilitation house set up, and they thought that just by getting me out of the environment of whoever they thought was programming me, that I'd snap out of it. But, of course, there was no one programming me, and, um, you know, Uh, It didn't really affect anything in terms of my following Jesus. Well, fast forward 30 years, you have been uh, teaching from the scriptures. You're a broadcaster, both in radio and television. You've been teaching people how Jesus fulfilled messianic uh, prophecy. Why is messianic prophecy so important? Not just just for someone with a Jewish background, but for Mm -hmm. anyone who has an interest in uh, who Jesus is in the broader sense and how uh, he is revealed to us in Scripture, not just in the New Testament, where Jesus himself and the disciples made reference to the Old Testament. Uh, but why is it important for us to understand Messianic prophecy? Well, good question, Georgine. Thanks for asking. I think there's a number of different reasons. I would say the first reason is because many people identify themselves as Christians. They believe they're Christians. But if push came to shove, if you ask them if Jesus was the only way to heaven, they're not really convinced of that. They're not convinced that their next-door neighbor that doesn't believe in Jesus but is such a good person, they don't believe that their next-door neighbor is really going to go to hell for, for not believing in Jesus. And they don't believe that the Muslim or take any other world religion, they look at somebody that practices another world religion that seems to be sincere, that seems to be devout, that seems to be religious, they, they can't bring themselves to believe or to say that God would send these people to hell. What people don't understand is when they have a position like that, they don't understand how Jesus fulfilled the Hebrew Bible, especially right now, to the point in terms of what the Hebrew Bible reveals to us about blood. You see, 
People that aren't convinced that Jesus is the only way, they don't understand his uniqueness as a as savior based upon the fact that he alone shed his blood for the guilty. And you look in the Hebrew Bible and you see that the means by which God redeemed Israel was through blood. They applied the blood on their doorpost at Passover. And when judgment moved through Egypt, Israel was passed over judgment. Then God brought them to the, in the wilderness at Sinai, where Moses, of course, went up the mountain, and the Lord gave him the law. Moses came down the mountain, spoke the law to the Jewish people. They said, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. They said yes to the covenant, and then Moses sprinkled them with blood. And then the Lord gave Moses the Jewish holy days, and the highest of which is called Yom Kippur, which I'm sure our audience has heard of, the Day of mm-hmm. Atonement. It was all about the priest, the high priest bringing into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat, and sprinkling it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Lord said, for the life of the flesh, in Leviticus 17:11 is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your soul. For it's the blood, by reason of its life, that makes atonement. So people that think that Jesus is, you know, a, a good path for me, but they're uncomfortable pushing him on somebody else, they don't understand that it's the blood of Jesus alone that can atone for man's sins. So being rooted in the Hebrew Bible will strengthen people to believe in the exclusive claims of Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but through me. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Uh, when we return, I want to talk a little bit about some of the ways that we misunderstand the nature of messianic prophecy. In fact, you make the statement that understanding messianic prophecy is often more of an art than a science. And we'll uh, delve into that in just a, a bit when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking with Rabbi Schneider. He's the host of Discovering the Jewish Jesus, heard on our sister station, KPDQ AM, in the morning at 1030 and at night, 9 p.m., Monday through Friday. <clears throat> and the author of the book we're discussing today, Messianic Prophecy Revealed, Seeing Messiah in the Pages of the Hebrew Bible. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Rabbi Schneider, host of Discovering the Jewish Jesus here on KPDQ AM and author of Messianic Prophecy Revealed, Seeing Messiah in the Pages of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, We oftentimes, um, as we're studying the scriptures in the New Testament, uh, we see that um, Jesus is made reference to as the uh, Messiah, but we find it somewhat confusing. What are some of the things that we misunderstand in our effort as uh, followers of Jesus to understand the nature of messianic prophecy. Sometimes a prophetic word doesn't seem prophetic from our 21st century American Gentile eyes. Well, that's a really good question. I was recently at a church, and the pastor got up to the pulpit, and he said, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies from the Hebrew Bible, and the chance of him doing that, fulfilling 300 prophecies, is astronomically impossible. In other words, he was making a case that there were 300 predictions in the Hebrew Bible, and that Jesus fulfilled all these 300 predictions like the, in a way that you could scientifically measure that they were fulfilled. For example, if Nostradamus said, you know, in the year 1100, whatever, I'm, I'm just making up the dates here, mm-hmm. but in, in the year 1150, there's going to be an earthquake in this part of the world on this date, and then sure enough, there was an earthquake that happened in that part of the world on that date. You could measure that. Wow. He said it, it really happened. 
So when a pastor gets up and says that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies from the Hebrew Bible, and the chances of him doing that are impossible unless he was God. So what they're making is a statement that Jesus fulfilled prophecies that are scientifically measurable. But the reality is sometimes the New Testament writers, when they said that Jesus fulfilled certain Old Testament prophecies, it wasn't in a way that could be scientifically measured. So for example, in Matthew's Gospel, early and right away in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, we know the story, Jesus is born, and Herod hears that the Messiah had been born, so he makes an edict to kill the Hebrew infants. And so in light of this, an uh, angel appears to Joseph, Jesus's father, and tells Joseph, take the child, Jesus, into Egypt to spare Jesus' life so that Jesus isn't killed by Herod's army. So Joseph takes Jesus into Egypt, and then eventually Herod dies. Most scholars estimate that Jesus was between two to four years old when Herod died. Then the angel comes back to Joseph and says to Joseph, okay, take the child, take Jesus back into Israel now. And so Matthew records this story, and then he says that the scripture might be fulfilled out of Egypt, did I call my son? So that's the scripture that Matthew says is being fulfilled here, out of Egypt, did I call my son? Well, there's only one place in the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible, Georgine and our listening audience, where that scripture is used, out of Egypt, I call my son. It's in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. So when you go to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, based on reading the fact that Matthew said that the scripture would be fulfilled, you would anticipate that there was going to be some type of predictive prophecy that Hosea was making, like when the Messiah comes, uh, God, he's going to be born in Egypt or something, and God is going to call him out of that bondage. You would anticipate, based on Matthew's use of the word, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that when we go to Hosea, we can see clearly that Hosea is making a prediction. But in reality, when you read Hosea 11:1, Hosea is not making a prediction. He's just recounting Israel's past. That out of Egypt did I call my son. He's just actually talking about the Exodus experience, what the Lord did in times past by delivering Israel out of Egypt. And so then you say, well, how, how is this a fulfillment of Scripture? So the way that Hosea is using that is not that Jesus fulfilled a predictive prophecy there, but that he filled that Scripture or Israel's history up with meaning by repeating in his own life the thing that Israel went through. So even as Israel was in Egypt and then was called out into Israel, so also Yeshua, God's son, spent time in Egypt and was called out of Egypt into Israel, thus filling that scripture and Israel's history up with meaning. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. We're talking with Rabbi Schneider. He's the author most recently of Messianic Prophecy Revealed, Seeing Messiah in the Pages of the Hebrew Bible. How is the book intended to be read from cover to cover, uh, from one prophetic uh, word in in Old Testament to another? How do you uh, see this book helping us to better understand Messianic prophecy? Well, first of all, let me say that the example that I just gave mm-hmm. is only one type of messianic prophecy. There also are predictive prophecies. For example, we read in the book of Micah that out of Bethlehem, a ruler will be born whose goings forth are from eternity. So that's a very specific prophecy that the Messiah, the ruler of the world, is going to come out of Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was born at. And not only that, but Micah illuminates the fact here that Messiah is not just a man like rabbinic Judaism believes today, but Messiah is actually God clothed in humanities from eternity. So I want to say that there are different streams of messianic prophecy, and I cover all those streams in the book. 
So it's not that the book has to be read all at once, but the chapters are short enough. Mm-hmm. That you just read, you know, one chapter at a time. And when you're done with the chapter, which are pretty easy to read, you're done. You pick it up again, you know, the next day or whatever, or you continue on. You know, I'm a believer. I've walked with Jesus for many years. But when I when I look at messianic prophecy and as you've written it in your book, I am continually um, encouraged and reassured of the validity of the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And the scriptures are so clear if we if we understand how to read and understand them, which is what your book uh, helps us to do, helps the reader to do. Yes, and there's also such beauty for people that really love God and, you know, they, they feel like they haven't learned anything new for a while. When they discover the Jewish roots of their faith and Messianic mm-hmm. prophecy is, is part of that, it's sometimes like they're born again. I mean, we know they're not born again, literally. They're only born again once, but they're like love for the Lord. Their passion yes. for the Lord feels like it did, you know, when they first got saved. So there's a lot of beauty and richness in seeing Jesus in the Hebrew Bible. No, you're so right. There's so many facets of this walk of faith that unless we have our Bibles open, we have resources like this one, Messianic Prophecy Revealed, uh, we're missing out on the joy of uh, one revelation after the other that's uh, given to us in God's Word that reminds us, reassures us, that gives us hope and um, uh, a place to, to look up as we walk through the difficulties in this life. So I so appreciate your calling us back to a a deeper understanding of what God's revealed in his word. Do you have messianic uh, prophetic um, words that um, are most uh, favorable to you that you especially enjoy? Um, Well, Isaiah 53 is very, very powerful. Mm. That's probably the most well-known messianic scripture, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to go there just simply because many people are familiar with it. But that is that is definitely like the the foundation of everything. I love the the uh, the famous Jewish story that everyone's familiar with, but there's something that most of us have missed. It's the story of Abraham offering up Isaac. You know, if you look at a picture of Abraham offering up Isaac, most of us, if we recall seeing a picture of that illustrated, Isaac is pictured as a young boy there, you know, maybe seven or eight years old. But according to Jewish tradition, Isaac was actually 37 years old when Isaac offered him up. And when you consider the story through that lens, it puts a whole other level Mm. of meaning on the story, that it's not just Abraham that's the hero of the story for being willing to offer up his only son. But Isaac also becomes a hero of the story, a grown man, 37 years old, that's willing to offer up his life in obedience to the Father as a sacrifice. And so, of course, this is a picture of God the Father and his son, Yeshua, who also offered up his life unto his Father in obedience. Um, I, I just love that story. According to Jewish tradition, that act actually opened up the world to the grace of God. According to, to, to Jewish tradition, the grace of God was largely shut off from the entire planet, Georgine, until Abraham offered up Isaac. And similarly, of course, the grace of God has been largely shut off from the world until Yeshua himself offered up his own life into, into obedience to the Father. Well, there's so many um, wonderful uh, ways that uh, Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilled pro- uh, the prophecy um, the blood that you made mention of earlier, the multidimensional nature of God, which you mm-hmm. cover in Messianic Prophecy Reveal, the Jewish holidays, which I think many of us view with some mystery. Uh, this book helps us to better understand the connection and the substitutionary sacrificial atonement made on our behalf by Jesus himself. This is a great resource for us to draw nearer to him by having a deeper understanding of and appreciation for what Christ has done for us and what the word teaches us. I so appreciate your 
writing it to help bring us deeper. Amen. Well, it's available on Amazon, and I think your station is giving away some free copies as well. And it's a blessing uh, to be able to spend some time with you today, Jorkeen, and I appreciate your passion. Absolutely. Just briefly, for listeners who haven't yet heard your program, Discovering the Jewish Jesus, give us a little taste of what they can expect. Well, my mission really is to uh, help people understand how the Old Testament that we call in Hebrew the Tanakh and the New Testament fit together like a hand in a glove and to help people get grounded in their faith of, in Jesus. You know, Yeshua said in John 4 to the woman at the well, we know what we worship for salvation is from the Jews. And the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, begins by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the very first verse in the New Testament begins by bringing the reader mm-hmm. back to the Torah and the Old Testament. So God must think it's pretty important for believers to understand their faith in Yeshua from a Hebraic or Jewish perspective, because it grounds us. Absolutely. And once again, that program can be heard weekdays uh, at 1030 a.m. and 9 o'clock p.m. Monday through Friday on KPDQ AM. And I would highly encourage you to check it out. I think you'll be um, blessed and encouraged. Well, Rabbi Schneider, thank you so much for uh, joining the KPDQ family and for spending time with us here today. Blessings to you, my friend. God bless you, my sister. God bless you as well. Again, Rabbi Schneider, host of Discovering the Jewish Jesus, heard on our sister station, KPDQ AM. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, Portland only. Returning to some of the day's headlines, 81% of Democrats believe that Trump's name should be removed from the ballot nationwide. The Supreme Court, as you probably know, has decided to take up at least part of that question and will likely resolve whether or not that is constitutional. 81% of Democrats believe states should disqualify the former president from the presidential ballot. But uh, by contrast, 90 percent of Republicans believe states should keep Trump's name on the ballot. Independents are more closely split. Forty four percent believe states should remove Trump's name from ballots. Trump's appearance on the ballot is facing lawsuits in at least 13 states, including Texas, Nevada and Wisconsin. The U.S. Supreme Court recently agreed to weigh in on the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to disqualify the former president from the state's ballot. And the court is set to hear oral arguments in that case on February 8th. Now, one would assume it would come sooner than that, but I suppose it's the um, 8th of January now. It's a month from today. Well, Congress reached a $1.66 trillion deal to avoid a government shutdown. Well, sort of. Congressional leaders reached the um, trillion-dollar agreement on Sunday to finance the federal government in 2024, preserving funding for key domestic and social safety net programs in the face of the GOP demands to cut the government's budget. Now lawmakers are up against a stiff deadline to pass legislation to codify the deal and to avert a partial government shutdown. Funding runs out for roughly 20 percent of the government, including for essential programs such as some veterans' assistance and food and drug safety services. On the 19th, and money for the rest of the government runs out shortly after on February the 2nd. The deal comes as both the House and the Senate are set to return from holiday break this week, ahead of a two-tiered government funding deadline, with the first batch of funding expiring on the 19th and the rest expiring, as I mentioned, on the 2nd of next month. The Speaker, though, touted that uh, the spending deal results in an overall $30 billion total in reduction from the Senate spending plans. Johnson said that there will be an additional $10 billion in cuts to the IRS mandatory funding, bringing the 
the total to $20 billion, and that $6.1 billion will be cut from the Biden administration's continuing COVID-era slush fund. Will that satisfy his critics? Not likely. In other news, Hezbollah has struck an air traffic control base in northern Israel. The Israel military said on Sunday and warned of another war with the uh, Iran-backed militant group. The increase in fighting across the border with Lebanon as Israel battles Hamas militants in Gaza gave new urgency to U.S. diplomatic efforts as the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken prepared to visit Israel on his latest Mideast tour. The Israeli military said Hezbollah's fire hit the sensitive air traffic control base on Mount Moran on Saturday, but air defenses were not affected because backup systems were in place. It said that no soldiers were hurt and all damage will be repaired. The Times of Israel reported that Hezbollah fired a barrage of more than 40 rockets and several missiles at the base atop Mount Meron, uh, which is located some eight kilometers or five miles from the Lebanon border. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan said on Sunday that Hunter Biden faces serious stuff with contempt of Congress proceedings that could lead to up to a year in jail. The GOP leader spoke to Fox News anchor Maria Bartiromo on Sunday, a Sunday morning futures about what consequences Biden might face for refusing to comply with congressional subpoenas as part of a corruption focused impeachment inquiry against the president. Reporter uh, uh, Assen says that Jim Jordan says failing to comply with a congressional subpoena uh, is a very serious matter that could result in prison time. House Speaker Mike Johnson on Sunday slammed Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Morocas handling of the southern border as an abject failure ahead of a planned Republican effort to impeach him. Johnson accused Mayorkas of dodging Republicans at every juncture to enforce the law to do his job, and he's done exactly the opposite. During an interview with CBS News Face the Nation moderator Margaret Brennan. Face the Nation says that on the Republican push to impeach the DHS secretary for his uh, handling of the border, Speaker Johnson uh, says it's uh, not a good faith negotiating partner with Congress. Democrat Senator John Fetterman criticized his own party for refusing to address the crisis at the southern border. This week, Fetterman admitted to reporters that the Democratic Party is in complete denial over President Biden's open border policies, which have caused havoc on the nation. With each passing day, Biden is in office. The crisis at the border keeps getting worse. A record-breaking amount of border crossers stormed the United States in December with 276,000 apprehensions, the highest ever on record. According to Customs and Border Protection sources, the December record came just one month after November's highest, with nearly 250,000 border encounters. Uh, Fetterman says there's a crisis at the border, and I don't know how anyone could pretend that there isn't. Republican Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, he issued an emergency executive order on Friday banning child gender transition surgeries after receiving intense backlash last week for vetoing a bill with a broader but similar mandate. Dubbed the SAFE Act, the original bill that DeWine rejected would have also prohibited physicians from prescribing cross-sex hormones or puberty-blocking medicine to kids. The legislation also banned men in women's sports, offering a legal recourse to students forced to play against the opposite sex. The new order would bar physicians from performing gender transition surgeries, such as mastectomies and hysterectomies on kids in Ohio's hospitals and health care facilities. He added that the new rule would require comprehensive and lengthy mental health counseling prior to being considered for any other treatment. 
U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Matthew Graves, suggested that law enforcement will still target those who just stood outside the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Well, the DA is looking to target those who stood outside of the Capitol on January 6. So if you were in proximity but not in the Capitol, you're still subject to prosecution or persecution, as some might suggest. During a press conference this week, Graves hinted that Americans who didn't even go inside the Capitol building on the 6th of January could still lead to thousands of arrests. The D.C. District Attorney has already charged more than 1,400 Americans with crimes relating to the protest on the 6th of January. He's also handed down more than 900 convictions, with almost all having prison sentences. On the contrary, Graves admitted that a significant portion of the 2020 George Floyd rioters were not charged at all, despite causing destruction and setting cities on fire. Hmm. Well, Post Millennial reports that U.S. District Attorney Matthew Graves suggests prosecutors will begin to target Americans who did not enter the Capitol, but were standing outside of it sooner rather than later. It is, after all, an election year. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has been hospitalized. The Secretary of Defense is still in the hospital today after having secretly checked in for a second time on Thursday. Now, secretly may not be the right word, but we'll go with it for now. Well, reports say that he originally checked in on December 22nd for an undisclosed elective surgery. Ten days later, on New Year's Eve, he was admitted to the intensive care unit at Walter Reed Hospital, apparently in severe pain. A day later, on the 2nd of January, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks, who was on vacation in Puerto Rico, was told via Zoom, Uh, that she'd be handling certain operational duties without even being told that her boss was in the hospital. Does this seem odd to anyone else? Well, Austin was away from his post for days, but told neither his immediate superior, Joe Biden, nor his immediate subordinate, Deputy Secretary Hicks. That sounds uh, like an unauthorized absence, at the very least, as Senator Rand Paul remarked this morning. It depicts a Biden administration that's very aloof, that Biden is a figurehead and other people are doing the work. And if an important person like the Secretary of Defense goes missing for a week or two, no big deal. We don't need to bother the president with this because he's not in charge anyway. End quote. Well, all this raises an interesting question about the drone strike that the U.S. carried out in Baghdad on Thursday, which killed a high ranking Iranian military leader who ordered that deadly strike if Austin was incapacitated and if Biden was unaware of his absence. Donald Trump says Austin's failures are uh, fireable offenses. But we can be confident that the president, who's already said he has no intention of letting uh, the letting him go, is likely to fire his um, woke defense secretary as uh, Harvard was to fire its woke president. Well, in other news, the U.S. Supreme Court, as I mentioned, has taken up the Colorado ballot challenge. To no one's surprise, they say it will decide whether Donald Trump can be booted off state presidential ballots on the grounds that he's an insurrectionist, which is a dubious charge to bring against a former president who has neither been charged with nor convicted of insurrection in a court of law. Indeed, Trump told his supporters on January 6, 2021, to peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard. 
At issue is the wacky four to three decision by an all Democrat Colorado Supreme Court that Trump, who violated the Constitution's so-called insurrection clause, a Civil War era statute meant to keep high ranking former Confederates from running for positions in the federal government. Maine's rogue secretary of state followed soon thereafter, as the New York Post reports in a brief order on Friday evening. The high court announced it will hear arguments on the 8th of February in the 77 year old's challenge to the Centennial State's ruling, which temporarily removed from the state's March 5th Republican primary ballot. We can expect a quick ruling as primaries and caucuses in states such as Iowa, New Hampshire and North Carolina are just days away. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. Junior National Hockey Team whipped the host nation Sweden 6-2 to on Friday night to take a gold medal. The guys played excellent today, said the coach, the head coach, David Carl. It's a joy for them. They focused on getting to this game and playing their best for the last game of the tournament. And I thought they did that. It's a great honor to be part of a winning team, end quote. Well, the viral moment came afterward, though, when the team didn't simply mouth the words to their national anthem as it was being played and their flag was being raised. Instead, the boys proudly belted out those words as team captain Rutger McGrorty said, it just showed how much we love our country, how we came together in such a short amount of time, end quote. Well, Canadian television ran the anthem, but ESPN didn't, which we think says as much about Canada's love of and respect for its national anthem and sport as it does woke ESPN's belief that such enthusiastic singing of the Star Spangled Banner by a bunch of pasty faced white boys is an unacceptable microaggression. Oh, Lord, help us. Well, a leading cause of death worldwide remains abortion. It's not disease or famine or war or crime. That's the leading cause of death worldwide. But an entirely preventable phenomenon that is primarily attributable to selfishness and convenience. Officially, roughly 60 million people died last year worldwide. But that number fails to include a significant portion of total human deaths. According to Worldometer, more than 44 million babies were aborted in 2023. 44 million. In other words, the actual total number of human deaths last year was nearly 40% higher than is officially recognized. This makes abortion, for at least the fifth year in a row, the leading cause of death worldwide. Abortion is the intentional killing of innocent human beings, which is an inconvenient truth that the abortion industry doesn't want to be recognized as such. Instead, couching it under the euphemism of reproductive health. Humanity is engaged in the mass genocide of the pre-born, which is the single biggest threat to the future of humanity on the planet. And by the way, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton is approaching. It's something of a different recognition now that it's been overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court as unconstitutional. Ohio Republican Mike DeWine saves the day. Evidently, Ohio Republican Governor DeWine's only objection to the transing of minors is when it comes to surgical procedures. One week after he vetoed House Bill 68, legislation that included a ban on transgender medical procedures for minors, he issued an emergency executive order to bar minors from undergoing gender mutilation via surgeries. When it comes to the administering of cost sex hormones to minors and biological males participating in girls sports, he apparently sees little problem with these issues as his order does not bar either. 
He justified his veto by dubiously asserting that this is about protecting human life. Hmm. He added, many parents have told me that their child would not be have survived, would be dead today without gender bending interventions. Well, Devine's order is an attempt to dissuade and or override the uh, his veto as the bill originally passed with a veto proof majority. Ohio lawmakers are scheduled to vote to override on the 10th of January. Nice try, Ohio Republican Governor Mike DeWine. Nearly 440,000 U.S. government jobs have been quietly scrubbed from the Bureau of Labor Statistics jobs totals in 2023. In other words, the first round of numbers measuring the total increase in government jobs this past year through November was inflated bigly. Well, this means that the job market was not as healthy as was initially reported. This is significant because the government sector in December ranked the highest for job creation, supposedly adding 52,000 jobs. Well, the BLS also adjusted down the total number of private sector jobs created over that same period by 358,000. Currently, the U.S. labor force participation rate sits at 62.5 percent, an historic low. Furthermore, the number of full-time workers dropped by 1.5 million since June of last year, But 769,000 part-time workers were added over that same span, indicating that more people are having to hold multiple jobs to make ends meet. Well, two years ago, it was reported the terrible news that 2021 was the deadliest year for our nation's law enforcement officers. Said Fraternal Order of Police President Patrick Yose at the time, we are on pace this year to see the highest number of officers shot in the line of duty in one year ever recorded, end quote. Well, that awful milestone didn't last long, though. As the Washington Times reports, a record 378 officers were shot while on patrol in 2023, which is a 14 percent increase from uh, 2022, according to the FOP. But another grim statistic is even more disturbing. There were 115 surprise attacks on police officers in 23, resulting in 138 wounded officers, both of which are record highs. A surprise attack is defined as one in which an assailant opens fire on an officer without warning and not in the course of an arrest. What's happening today, said the uh, Fraternal Order of Police Executive Director Jim Pascoe, is the increased firepower and again diminishing respect for the law enforcement profession and for the work that law enforcement officers do. Yes, better armed criminals are a problem, but so are the Democrats' disdain for law enforcement in general and their increasingly pro-crime, anti-cop policies. Letitia James is seeking $370 million from Donald Trump in the New York civil case, and a third batch of Jeffrey Epstein court documents have been released. The Washington Post is in full-scale collapse, and the Biden administration dramatically lowered standards related to immigrants from China by reducing the number of questions asked from 40 to 5. The National Park Service removed William Penn's statue from the historic Pennsylvania Park in an inclusive makeover to show more Native American history. Apparently, there's not enough room for both. And a Florida man is suing Dunkin' Donuts over a traumatic toilet explosion. I'm not sure I really want to know the details. I'll just leave it at that. Well, on this day in history, 1815, and no, I was not present at the time, the last major engagement of the War of 1812 comes to an end as U.S. forces defeat the British in the Battle of New Orleans, not having gotten word of the signing of a peace treaty. 1918, President Woodrow Wilson outlines his 14 points 
for lasting peace after World War One. Apparently, we needed more points. 1975, Judge John J. Sarika, he orders the early release from prison of Watergate figures John W. Dean III, Herbert Kalmba, and Jeb Stuart Magruder. 1975, Democrat Ella Grasso is sworn in as Connecticut's first female governor. 1982, American Telephone and Telegraph, also known as AT&T, settles the Justice Department's antitrust lawsuit against it by agreeing to divert, rather divest itself, maybe divert, of the 22 Bell System companies. 1998, Ramzi Yosef, the mastermind of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, is sentenced in New York to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 2008, Senator Hillary Clinton, the Democrat from New York, wins New Hampshire's Democrat primary, defeating Senator Barack Obama from Illinois and fueling new life in her bid for the White House. Senator John McCain defeats four Republican rivals to move back into contention for the GOP nomination. 2011, U.S. Representative Gabrielle Giffords, the Democrat from Arizona, is shot and critically wounded when a gunman opens fire as she meets with constituents in Tucson. Six people are killed. Twelve others are injured. 2014 Bridgegate emails and text messages obtained by the Associated Press and other news organizations suggest that one of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's top aides engineered traffic jams in Fort Lee in September of 2013 to punish its mayor for not endorsing Christie for reelection. Christie responded by saying he'd been misled by the aide and he denied involvement in the apparent act of political payback. He, of course, is um, running for the Republican nomination in the 2024 presidential race. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.